Close Horse is brought to you with support from the following sustainable brands. Selena Sanders, a social impact brand that specializes in upcycle clothing using only reclaimed vintage or thrifted materials from tea towels, linens, blankets, and quilts. Sustainably crafted in Los Angeles, each piece is designed to last in one's closet for generations to come. Maximum style, minimal carbon footprint. Picnic wear, a slow fashion brand made by hand in New York City from vintage and dead stock textiles. Picnic wear strives for minimal waste, but maximum authenticity. Future vintage over future garbage. Find Picnic wear on Instagram at Picnic wear, and that's wear, W-E-A-R, and at www.picnicwear.com. No flight back vintage, bringing fun new life to old things always using recycled and secondhand materials to make dope-ass shit for dope-ass people. See more on Instagram at NoFlightBackVintage. Shift clothing out of beautiful Astoria, Oregon, with a focus on natural fibers, simple hardworking designs, and putting fat people first. Discover more at shiftwheeler.com. Late to the party, creating one-of-a-kind statement clothing from vintage, salvaged, and thrifted textiles. They hope to tap into the dreamy memories we all hold. Floral curtains, a childhood dress, the wallpaper in your best friend's rec room. All while creating modern, sustainable garments that you'll love wearing and have for years to come. Late to the party is passionate about celebrating and preserving textiles, the memories they hold, and the stories they have yet to tell. Check them out on Instagram at Late to the Party People. Vino Vintage, based just outside of LA. We love the hunt of shopping secondhand because you never know what you might find. Catch us at flea markets around Southern California by following us on Instagram at vino.vintage so you don't miss our next event. Shop Journal Vintage, specializing in upcycled, handmade, and vintage fashion for all genders. Owner Laura makes each piece by hand with love in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, with an emphasis on upcycled menswear, tie-dye, modern jewelry, cottagecore collars, and everything in between. Shop Journal makes pieces they love and hopes you will too. Getting dressed should always be fun. See more on Instagram at shop underscore journal. Old Flame Mending helps you keep your clothes intact through clothing repair, visible mending, and tailoring. Through extending the life of textiles, Old Flame Mending makes your pieces not only wearable and functional again, but also unique and beautiful. This mending duo is based in Pittsburgh, but they take mail-in mending orders from anywhere in the U.S. For more information, visit them at oldflamemending.com or follow them on Instagram at oldflamemending. Gabriella Antonis is a visual artist and an ethical trade fashion designer. But Gabriella is also a radical feminist micro-business. She's the one-woman band trying to help you understand why slow fashion is what the earth needs. The one-woman band to help you build your own brand. She can take your fashion line from just a concept and do your sketches, pattern making, grading, sourcing, cutting, and sewing. The second option is for those who aren't trying to start a business and who just want ethical garments. Gabriella Antonis will create custom made-to-measure garments just for you. Her goal is to help help one person of any size at a time, including beyond size 40. To inquire about this serendipitous intersectional offering of either concept, DM her on Instagram to book a consultation. Please follow her on Instagram and Twitter at Gabriella Antonis. Dylan Page is an online clothing and lifestyle brand based out of St. Louis, Missouri. 
Our products are chosen with intention for the conscious community. Everything we carry is animal-friendly, ethically made, sustainably sourced, and cruelty-free. Dylan Page is for those who never stop questioning where something comes from. We know that personal experience dictates what's sustainable for you, and we are here to help guide and support you to make choices that fit your needs. Check us out at dylanpage.com and find us on Instagram at dylanpagelifeandstyle. Salt Hats, purveyors of truly sustainable hats, hand-blocked, sewn, and embellished in Detroit, Michigan. Find us on Instagram at Salt Hats. Gentle Vibes, a vintage shop for the psychedelic mind, formerly inside Jeans and Hamtramck with a new Detroit location coming soon. See more on Instagram at Gentle Vibes Vintage. Wide-Eyed Vintage, a curator of truly covetable vintage from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Wide-Eyed Vintage encourages the experimental spirit of dressing up and will provide you with all the special pieces that will make your wardrobe truly unique. Dedicated to preserving the craftsmanship of clothes, Wide-Eyed Vintage only selects pieces that are well-made, pieces that have been proven to last beyond their lifetimes, so you too can enjoy them for more lifetimes to come. See more on Instagram at wide underscore eyed underscore vintage. Karen Kinney Studio. Located in Western Massachusetts, Karen specializes in handcrafted earrings from found, upcycled, and repurposed fabrics, as well as other eco-friendly curios, all with a hint of nostalgia, a dollop of whimsy, a dash of color, and 100% fun. Karen is an artist slash designer who believes the materials we use matter. See more on Instagram at Karen Kinney Studio or online at www.cKinney.com. Welcome to Close Horse, the podcast that really needs to just like once and for all finally learn how to crochet. So if anybody has some good tips, some good YouTube videos or websites they recommend for me to teach myself how to do this, send them my way. It's time. (laughs) I'm your host, Amanda. Well, welcome to episode 52. This episode features the second half of my conversation with Clothes Horse All-Star Celicia, and we'll be talking about kids' clothing. Specifically today, we'll be discussing all of the weird safety laws for kids' clothing, and I have to tell you, (laughs) we'll be talking about cigarettes an awful lot for an episode about kids' clothes. (laughs) You'll understand when we're done. (laughs) But wait, there's more than that because it's secondhand month. So I'll also be talking to textile artist Rose Beerhorst of Brave Hand Textiles. She'll talk to us about how she turns the world's most unwanted t-shirts into beautiful works of art. And we'll be talking about so much more too because, you know, that's how these clothes horse conversations tend to go. (laughs) But first... It's time to thank the newest Patreon supporters. First is Shannon Meeker of beautiful Astoria, Oregon. I can't say Astoria, Oregon without saying it's beautiful because it's true. 
Shannon, I think you're maybe like our third or fourth patron from Astoria. And I swear I'm going to have to make a stop in Astoria on the eventual Clothes Horse World Tour. Shannon seems like she's always working on something really cool, and she knits up some really nice socks. Thank you so much for your support, Shannon. Next is Laura Bourgeois. Laura, did I pronounce your name correctly, or did I just go way too fancy and Frenchy with it? Uh, Laura is a serious knitter, and we recently bonded in the Clothes Horsing Around Facebook group about how much we would love a yarn vending machine in the airport. Like, think about it. Someone needs to start a business, ASAP, that sells craft kits and supplies in the airport, preferably via a vending machine, because vending machines are rad. And I would say, because, you know, like, not everybody wants to read a magazine on a plane. Plenty of crafters forget, like, one supply that they need for a flight, And I have found that knitting on a long international flight while you watch tons of movies that you would never go see in the theater is like a pretty decent way to spend a day, you know? Also, I know that there's like some super smart budding entrepreneur out there who could create craft kits that wouldn't need things like scissors that can't get through security, you know, like everything could be pre-cut or something. Anyway, I know one of you is going to pull this off. (laughs) I digress, (laughs) but thank you so much for your support, Laura. Next, we have Abby of Peel and Wax Vintage, one of my favorite vintage sellers ever. Also, one of the nicest people I've ever met. Do yourself a favor and check her out on Instagram at Peel and Wax Vintage because she just has like the coolest stuff. I don't know how she does it. It's magical. And her aesthetic is just amazing. Thank you so much, Abby. Last but not least, Allison Martin. Allison keeps a low profile on the internet, so I found it really hard to stalk her and find facts about her, but that's probably a good thing. (laughs) She is a member of Close Horsing Around, so I look forward to getting to know her. Thank you so much for your support, Allison. And I don't know if you noticed a new Pegasus supporter at the beginning of the episode, but Karen Kinney Studio is a new Pegasus sponsor. Karen makes all kinds of lovely jewelry that would make a great gift, and she's going to be branching out into homewares in the future. I mean, she has some incredible secondhand stuff from her home that she's been sharing with us this week on Instagram, and seeing how great her eye is, I know everything she makes in the future is going to be so cool. I mean, she's using a popcorn cart as a desk, guys. Like that, that is the dream right there. Thank you so much for your support, Karen. If you, yes, you would like to support Clothes Horse via Patreon, you can find out more at patreon.com slash clothes horse podcast. And I'll share that link in the show notes. If Patreon isn't your thing, you can also send a one-time donation via Venmo to at crystal underscore visions. And you don't have to do either of those things because just listening is really important and very supportive. And I'm so grateful to have you here. I have some hotline messages to share, but I'll be including those in the next few episodes, which will be dun, 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 hotline episodes. I've been having 
all kinds of amazing conversations with different members of our community about their various expertises and experiences in the secondhand area. So get ready for so much cool info in the upcoming episodes. And if you have something to share, please reach out via the Clothes Horse Hotline. That number is 717-925-7417. I want to hear from you about the art you make from secondhand materials, your own secondhand shopping tips, your favorite thrift item, whatever it is you think we should all know, because I bet it's good and we want to hear it. Also, Listener Tori started a whole Instagram trend where we're sharing our favorite secondhand finds every day in stories. Tori, you're like a major influencer now. (laughs) If you want to join the fun, just tag at Clothes Horse Podcast in your posts, and I can't wait to see what you're going to share. All right. Well, I'm just really excited for all of you to meet textile artist Robes Beerhorst. We had such a lovely time talking this week, and I think you're just going to love her. So let's get right into it. So why don't you introduce yourself to everyone? Okay. Um, My name is Rose Beerhorst. I am uh, currently living in West Philadelphia. I'm a textile artist that primarily uses uh, reclaimed materials like t-shirts, sheets, um, and other uh, fabric yardage. I make rugs, quilts, and other textiles, um, and I use uh, found materials to create rugs. Um, they usually be called rag rugs, mm-hmm. like the quote term, <laughs> but uh, yeah, <laughs> crocheted rugs. That's the technical, like what I'm making. So they're crocheted because that was going to be my next yes. question. I was looking at them and I was like, I mean, they don't think they're knit. I don't, they don't look macrame. So wow, I really yeah. need to get on the ball and learn how to crochet. It's been on my wish list. Crocheting is really fun and it's really fast, but it uses up more material than uh, knitting. It's kind of like a fast and loose approach. So how did you get into making things out of like salvage materials? So um, actually, my mom uh, did hooked rugs, um, which is when you pull loops through burlap or some other, like, material you can pull things through, mm-hmm. and it kind of makes that shag look. Um, mm-hmm. And she would do it with wool, like 100% wool that she would thrift from um, thrift stores and, like, old suits a lot of times, and she would wash them. It would felt. And then she had a little machine that would make the little strips. What? And, um, this is so amazing. Was, I've never heard of this. Yeah, so that's called rug hooking. And if you Google it, you'll see, like, a lot of uh, hooked rugs. That's a very old um, tradition. But she would do that. And so I always kind of I, – I mean, I guess I just learned from example that you could make things out of things that already exist, things you can get for cheap, things other people don't necessarily value. Yeah, I I mean that is a great way to sort of summarize it that a lot of these things that people think of as like trash or unuseful are actually incredible raw materials. Exactly. So when we were emailing, you told me about how you got started making yarn out of t-shirts. Yep. Mhm. I 
learned to crochet when I was like eight. I was super obsessed with it and I would make things like scarves and hats. I even crocheted myself like a tube top one time that my mom like would not let me wear in public, <laughs> but I was just having a blast. I was so excited. I kept making things, but um, like the closest craft store was like really far away and it was like kind of a uh, niche. So the yarn was a lot of times like it wouldn't be like heart yarn or the like the really acrylic stuff. It would be wool yarn, which if you're a knitter, you know, it can be extremely expensive. Oh my gosh. When it you're is. like nine. <laughs> yeah. No, yarn so, is so expensive. Like if you're going to yeah, knit like yourself nice a sweater. Yarn, oh my, you're going to spend like a hundred dollars and you didn't easily see it yet, which is yeah. going to take you. It's, at, like you know a million years but yeah so I <laughs> yeah. I was like okay I have all these ideas what can I uh use um that's more readily available so <laughs> I'm the oldest of six and we were all like my, my parents would almost get mad at a point because like in the town like people would just always just drop off like boxes of their clothes because they're just like oh you know you're a giant family like we you know, our kids are grown. Maybe you'll want to look through these. Like, I would, like, literally, like, annoy him because people would do this so much. And so we always had, like, all these clothes. It was just, like, this um, always replenishing, like, source. So I started cutting them up. I think I'd seen some tutorials on Pinterest or something. But I started cutting up T-shirts because it was stretchy. Mm-hmm. And I experimented with um, – crocheting with that yarn I made t-shirt yarn and I actually so I needed a bigger crochet hook to do this so I carved one out of a drumstick what? like, like a, a drumstick like for a rock and roll drum set that somebody had like left in her house <laughs> <laughs> and uh it was really uh, easy mm-hmm. um and one of the things I noticed when I started crocheting with uh t-shirt fabrics and like um ripped up cotton is that uh it, you know you could make things faster that were really big which felt really dramatic and exciting but it was able to seem like too it's like really time consuming to make yarn out of t-shirts so it is the t-shirts does take longer now there are ways that you you fold it in such a way that you can um, do it more efficiently you mm-hmm. need very sharp scissors. You know, I, I know a lot of crafters understand this, that if you have scissors that are for fabric, they're just for fabric, and you'll, like, yell at anyone that uses them yeah. for paper because <laughs> it will ruin them. Mm-hmm. Um, but with the with the sheets or any, like, large pieces of cotton fabric, you can rip them, and it'll go really fast. And I don't even rip it to the end so that it's an – I just, like, rip it almost to the end, and then I go back down so that it, it never ends. There's um, no cut, mm. and so I don't have to tie it all together. Wow, that's um, so smart. For our wedding, I made all of our decorations, and it was, like, old sheets in the thrift store that I dyed. I got really good at mixing writ dye oh, cool. to cut the colors, and then I shredded it totally. all. And Shredding fabric is, like – it's a good feeling actually <laughs> it's very satisfying it's very loud there's one thing I want to say as somebody that's been doing this for a really long time if you try this yourself I really recommend um, doing it outside if you're able I know it's cold right now but it will especially if you're doing it for a long period of time there will be a lot of fabric dust released mm-hmm. into your air and it's just not great 
or breathing. And I don't even want to think about what's in there necessarily and what it does to our bodies. Like, I don't really know. I try not to think about it, but <laughs> I've noticed that if I do it in a closed room for a long period of time, I'll get like sneezy and weird. My eyes will start to itch. Like, what is your favorite thing to make yarn out of? Um, Cotton sheets. Yeah. And bright, bright t-shirts. And it's so funny because you've been doing a lot of great podcasts where you like talk about the terrible t-shirts that you find in thrift stores. And <laughs> I totally, I, I'm the one that I buy them all. And, and the ladies at the, the counter just look at me like, what is she doing? Cause I'm buying like 50. And it's like, I feel like what I see the most that always, I just don't know why people keep making them, but it's those like, like office 5k. Oh. I knew you were going to say that one. I hate that's that. That's what it is. Yeah. At least where in the neighborhood I am, they're all like terrible. Like I'm sure nobody wanted to do it. Like corporate like runs or trots. <laughs> huh. It's just, it's like awful. And then uh, it's like a lot of, um, I'm, I'm near pen. So it's all these weird pen t-shirts and college t-shirts. I hate that like every job or club is like, well, we better get a T-shirt. Nobody wants it. It looks horrible. They all end up in the thrift store, but I use them. <laughs> that's good. I'm glad. I'm yeah. glad. You know, that's so much cotton to make one T-shirt and so much water. And then for it to be for your office 5K is just yeah such a bummer. And, and those ones are always the most fun colors, though, because they're always the most obnoxious colors. <laughs> they are. They are. A lot of neons. Uh, a oh, lot of that God. always neon. Color. Yeah. Orange, yellow, uh, yeah. bright green. Um, but anyway, yeah, I, I buy those. And usually, you know, if there's like a color sale, I'll just get everything that's, um, you know, it's 50 cents, but now it's 25 cents. Because they really don't price those T-shirts very high because, you know, nobody wants them. So. Nobody wants them. Yeah. <laughs> nobody wants them. <laughs> um, and I will, I will like, keep something if I – or leave it if, you know, it's, like, too cute or I think somebody will want it. I It's pretty easy to avoid those because there aren't that many. But, I you know, I'll, <laughs> there is stuff that's too – and I do that with sheets, too. Sometimes there's a fabric, and, you know, even though it's at a thrift store, it's just the pattern's so beautiful that I wouldn't use it, you know? So you get the T-shirts and you, like, wash them, obviously, and you turn yep. them into yarn. But do you – what do you do with the section – well, two sections I have a question about. One yes. is, like, where the print is, and two mm -hmm. is the, like, binding around the collar. So I do throw away the collar, and mm -hmm. um, and and I will actually just cut right through the logo or the front, you know, the, the image – Unless it's that really thick, like yeah. crinkly, really bad stuff that's just plastic, like really thick, um, and then I'll, I will throw that away. So I'm not like a zero waste, but it was kind of already waste because at least that's how I think of it. Oh, for sure, for sure. And I, I have tried to in the past when I've been like upcycling other T-shirts and stuff of ours. I've tried so hard to come up with something for the neckline, no. and I, just, yeah. I have not found that yet. So if anyone's listening and you've got yeah. something there, holler at me. I want to know. Yeah. But it's, like, such a strange piece of fabric. It's really odd. Yeah. So um, the bottom hem I can use, and then the, like, 
the the hems on the sides and uh, in the armpits. I can use a sleeve, but there are like the hems that I'm just cutting just off. But it's it's a tiny amount of of waste. Do you dye it, or you just you just stick with these horrible colors? I mean, because what's a horrible <laughs> color in a t-shirt is a cute color in something else. Yeah, I really challenge myself. I generally don't dye them. I usually just use the terrible colors, but sometimes they are really terrible. Like my work <laughs> is not neutral because I am using these terrible colors, which I I find is kind of fun and kind of like a challenge, and it forces me to to come up with color combos that uh. You know, they aren't as typical because I had to challenge myself to use, like, a fluorescent color. But sometimes with the larger sheets, I will dye them, and I have been doing that lately with some writ dyes. Um, I would like to do natural dyes, but it's so rare to find 100% cotton sheets because those are more valuable and people don't donate, mm-hmm. donate them as much. So why is it so important to you to reuse materials? Because, like, now you're an adult. You could go buy some yarn or something if you wanted to, like, why do you continue to reuse materials that are already out there? Um, I think there's like two main reasons. One is because I, I find it very satisfying. Um, I like to take something that was undervalued or kind of worthless and to turn it into something beautiful. And then there's like a lot more um, practical reason, which is I make rugs to sell and if I can get something for it very cheap or free, rather than spending more, then I have a higher profit margin. Yeah, I mean, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how many, because you said, like, crochet uses a lot of, it's like, what did you call it, fast and loose? So it uses yeah. a lot of Yeah, material. it uses a lot more yardage, or, or I wouldn't, I don't know what would be the right term for that. It uses a lot of, um, a lot of, uh uh, yarn or the the rag yarn I make, but um, I mean, there's probably like three, four sheets and like five or six shirts in like a four foot by four foot rug. Wow. Yeah, and that can sound like a ton, and it it kind of is, but I mean, as we've been talking about, this stuff is so readily available that I might, you know, get all of that for like. I mean, I really don't do the math that much, but it could be like my investment was five dollars. Wow, that's yeah. I mean, that's amazing though because your rugs are so beautiful and unique, and it's like, I mean, it's like a mega upcycle for these ter- terrible T-shirts. Like, it's the ideal yeah. next life for a crappy. Uh, 401k, not 401k, that's your retirement fund, <laughs> 5k t-shirt. Exactly. Yeah. And another benefit to using this material is that it can go in the washing machine like my rugs can. They have to hang to dry, but they can go in the washing machine. They won't shrink like if I was using wool, which is nice for something that, you know, is generally on the floor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, um, you know, another thing is basically – of course, my materials aren't expensive, but, you know, I'm, I'm putting – it's my time and it's my talent that I've been doing this for so long. I can do it. Um, and that's, like, how I price my rugs. I mean, And I like that, too. I just like thinking about the time because it gets so complicated when you're thinking about high material costs. Yeah, yeah. No, and you should be paid for that time. I mean, mm-hmm. because it's not even just the actual crocheting of the rug itself. It's 
tracking down the t-shirts and the other and the other textiles exactly Watching them turning them into yarn mm-hmm. planning out the rug yeah it's yeah a lot of work I tell everyone all the time like it the is. work is so much <laughs> more than the time you spend actually making it really them. is yeah. yeah yeah and promoting oh my gosh it's like a whole thing but uh <laughs> there have been periods of my time where that was my only source of income in my uh late teens and early 20s when I was living independently and I was doing it like full time um and now I have a day job um and so I'm just doing it that way now there's like a rich history of um using um like kind of fabric that is no longer serviceable to make rugs specifically mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. In America, there's all these different techniques just to do a rag rug where you can braid, you can crochet, people could even knit, and um, there's also rug hooking where you can actually pull t- t-shirt through burlap, kind of even similar to the rug tufting guns people are doing right now. You can't do a tufting gun with it, but you can make a hooked rug by pulling the strips through burlap. And wow. There's so many different ways you could you can do it. and um, I just encourage people to look up rag rugs and hooked rugs and just kind of, there's like some beautiful American traditions to kind of learn about. And what, you know, and like rugs are so expensive. Yeah. <laughs> and it's so really true. hard to find a rug. If you're a person with a, like a very particular sensibility, I'll say it that way. It's really hard to find a rug that feels right for you. And guaranteed if you do you're like um it's a thousand dollars i don't have a thousand dollars for a rug so totally why not make a rug that is exactly what you want and have the bonus of being like i did that yeah and you can use up your clothes that you know you've been meaning to donate or you know uh there's even like i've read historical like accounts of women making uh rugs out of their like deceased family members clothes to have something to remember them by now there's quilts you can do that with too but there's like all kinds of like meaningful ways to kind of think about it or experiment with it mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting that you bring up quilting because I was thinking as you were talking like could rugs be the new quilt you know what I mean I mean Totally. I actually, so one of the things that I read it, cause I was like, before this conversation, I was like, oh man, like, I don't know. Should I look up the history of rug making? And so one of the things that I did learn in traditional American rug making is that, um, so, uh, like ladies, like of, of like well-to-do families, they would go to these finishing schools where they would learn to quilt and they would learn to embroider. They did not learn to make rugs because making rugs was thought of something as that was like more like what common or lower lower class people did. And um, also another thing about like that is that um, during like the Industrial Revolution and fabric mills, there were um, these yarn mills in America where the women were allowed to collect the clippings. And they made these beautiful like the, the people working there, the women working there made these beautiful rugs that were the hooked rug variety um, out of, like, the clippings from the factory floor of these yarn uh, factories. That I thought that was really cool, and there's some really cool stuff people can look up. I if you're looking that. at Americana, like, hooked rugs and uh, rag rug tradition. I feel like basically what you're saying is that making rugs is, like, 
punk as fuck. Like it's super <laughs> punk. Specifically. I don't know why. It's just it is. It feels, <laughs> it feels like it to me, like just the idea that it's like making an art out of something that was considered like sort of like lower class craft to do is I mean it's it's like so spinning cool. straw into gold, you know? Yeah, yeah. And then if you're like making it out of salvaged materials, I mean like now I'm ready to start making rugs. I got to think of what I want to do first. I kind of have been wanting an orangish rug for our living room, and I know there's plenty mm. of ugly orange T-shirts at the thrift store. I see them all oh, the time. Oh, there really are. You can make a big tag <laughs> one with a hookup. Oh, and you can also weave them. Obviously, you can weave yeah. T-shirts. Like everybody does that. That's like a really fun and simple way to do it. Like weaving is really great. You can use so many different uh, reclaimed textiles that way. I remember, I don't know why this is like sticking with me, but I remember, so the book that I read the most as a teenager, I easily read it like 100 times, was The Bell Jar, you know, by Sylvia Plath. Oh, yeah. And there's a part in there, and it's supposed to be sort of a metaphor for how like undervalued women's work is, which I stand by. Oh, yeah. Uh, totally. And about how someone, I want to say it was like her boyfriend's mom or someone made a rug out of all their old clothes. And she thought it was so beautiful and it looked like it should be hung on the wall. But, you know, a week later, it's like by the kitchen sink and it's already super dirty and no one looks at it. And when you're talking about rug making, I just kept thinking of that story. Yeah, and, well, I mean, it, it it is art, you know, and that was something like my dad did uh, figurative oil paintings, which is considered by everyone. That is what art is. Yes, yes, yes. Even like the like farmer is like, oh yeah, figurative oil painting. That this is art. I understand that this is art, and I will consider this art. But um, my mom, my mom did hook drugs, and that was you know, oh, it's craft. It's women's work. It's craft, and you know, she had all her little craft books from the seventies and sixties that she would reference. But I loved those books, and I love textile crafts, and I've always loved it. I've always wanted to learn more and more about it, and. Um, one of the, the the art exhibit that I've seen that moved me the most was when the quilts of G's Bend came to the Grand Rapids um, Art Museum, mm-hmm. and I recommend that the listeners look up the quilts of G's Bend. They it was an African American community in G's Bend of women that made like the most beautiful um, pieced quilts that are like modern art before modern art. They're so beautiful, and they're just made with their old clothes and seed sacks and, you know, fabric that they got very cheaply, but they're incredible, and uh, there's a lot of really good books about them, and they tour still because they've been recognized as art by, like, art museums. I think not that that fucking matters, but... No, of course not. It's like, finally, people are realizing that textile crafts are art, and I think it, that, like, just goes back to, you know, like sexism like textile Absolutely. art has always been associated with women and you know it's like women can't be artists that was yeah throughout time. Time. <laughs> yeah and so I'm really excited I feel like we're like in the beginning of this like golden era of textile art I think because I see so many people doing really cool stuff even just in the past year because we're like all home right and people are learning to so are we learning to do this yeah this or learning for the first time. It's really exciting. And I I love Instagram. Um, that's how I found Clothes Horse. And that's, you know, it, it's sad because it's a pandemic, but it feels like such a community for me right now. Is And I really just love to see what everybody's making. 
and I've appreciated it. I had Flickr when I was younger, and then I transitioned to Instagram, and I've been using it as a resource for inspiration and to make friends, and I just love that, and I'm glad I can keep doing it. I would love to see, because I don't know how to do macrame, but I would love to see if the, like, listeners could do macrame with um, T-shirts or um, cut-up fabric at all. Uh, like, plant hangers specifically would be cool. Yeah. Um, I've been trying to do it, but I'm just I'm just not good at macrame. It's not the material. I don't want to do it. If you're listening, show us your macrame plant hangers that you made out of upcycled materials. I know you can do yeah. it. I think if that's your if that's your technique, macrame, then you're already like, oh, I clearly need this kind of fabric. I have no idea. So <laughs> tell tell us how to do it. I want to see it. I'm really trying to reinforce that like there's so much stuff we can make out of things that already exist and then that keeps things yes. out of the landfill because like when you go to Joanne or Michael's or what have you, I mean, I won't even say Hobby Lobby because I won't shop there at oh. all, but uh, <laughs> I know some people do. Uh, that's like fast craft. You know what yeah, I mean? It is. It is. And also it's expensive. Fabric yardage is expensive even at Michael's or Joanne's, you mm-hmm. know, and it's already out there. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So this is a great way to be both sustainable and economical. Exactly. <laughs> so have you found, I mean, I guess you have a day job anyway, so you're not probably fretting in the same way a lot of people are during the pandemic, but have you found that business is good during the pandemic? So that's a really good question, and I find it really interesting. Um, I, find, I actually think this is kind of, uh, it's like it was really nice in a way, but it was also kind of sad because um, during the summer when everybody got their um unemployment like where it was the enhanced unemployment where I was getting more or the people were getting more than um, normal unemployment I actually had a lot of my friends buy rugs for the first time because they were getting more than they did before at their jobs yep yep and so that's kind of disturbing because it's just really sad because I have a lot of friends that are in the food service industry or you know uh, I think Instagram trends young and so a lot of my followers are a little younger than me or, you know, in my hometown. Um, but that, I noticed that, like, a lot of people that had followed me for so long had bought rugs because they finally had the money to during that period. Now, that period's kind of over now. Um, mm-hmm. And, you know, it's actually uh, – 2020 was a pretty good year for me, all things considered. And I think, one, it was the un- unemployment extra compensation but it was also the fact that um, people are nesting. They're just at home. Mm-hmm. And I don't have, like, I don't make clothes. I make rugs and textiles. And I think people were kind of more interested in that kind of stuff right now because we're working from home or we're at home and we just want to kind of make our houses, like, a better, like, sanctuary or just really take the time to do some, like, interior decorating. So I did notice that there actually was an increase in sales. I mean, that all of that stuff based on all of the, like, business reading and what I do, both things are very, very true. Um, yeah. I think that that unemployment boost was one of the best things that could have happened for a lot of people and it a was. lot of small businesses, too. And when it expired, it was pretty devastating. Yeah, I agree. I really, I mean, we, people should still be getting that. I hope it happens again. And it also just shows that people need to be paid more. Um, I know, especially in the food service industry. Yes, 100%. I get so irate at the people who are like, 
well, now people are making more than they did at their jobs. They don't want jobs. And I'm like, well, that's because you weren't paying them. Yeah, that's like actually really bad because of how, you know, they just weren't making enough, which was super exploitative. (laughs) Yeah. And like, I will tell you, even with that boost, unemployment doesn't pay that much. No. Oh my gosh. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Really the point. Yep. 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 Well, do you think you'll ever go back to just making rugs full time? Honestly, I grew up, both my parents were, um, they were making art full time and that was their, their sole income and they felt really strongly about it. And so growing up, I was like, well, if I can't do it, I'm going to be a failure um, because that was the mindset. Uh, and it was really hard, you know, and there were things that we went without. Um, I grew up below the poverty line. I was really scrappy. I learned to survive on very little. And so that's what I was doing in my early twenties. Um, so I would be making like 16,000 a year and I was doing rugs full time and it was fine because I was a kid. Mm-hmm. And I knew how to live that way. I lived in, like, a big community house with a bunch of other kids. We did, like, punk shows in our basement. We would, like, get food really cheap and just, like, all live in a very communal way. And it was really fun. Um, That's really fun, actually. But as a – no, it was, like, actually, like, fantastic. I'm so homesick for it now because, you know, the pandemic. Yeah. And working at home, it's, like, so boring and lame. And I just miss community. Yeah, but you know, my rent was one fifty. Oh my gosh! Can you imagine? <laughs> no, <laughs> like it's hilarious. <laughs> it was a lifestyle that was fantastic, but it was not sustainable. And my parents made extreme sacrifices to make it work for them, and it didn't work that well for them. <laughs> yeah. um, and so I was always kind of open to a day job or like working in some capacity. But honestly, this sounds so funny because I know it's not many people's experience, but I didn't know how. I didn't know, like, where to start with that or what kind of jobs I could get. And so I guess I'm getting ahead of myself. So when I was I was selling drugs full time, I did, like, a lot. I was making tons of them. I made some, like, in my, like, late teens, early 20s, I had some, like, really exciting big stuff like um I sold uh, a number of rugs to Etsy headquarters, including one that's in their permanent collection, which was really exciting at the time. Wow. Wow. Yeah. Um, I, like, was selling in some stores in New York, Chicago. They were buying them. And it was great. But, um, like, I'm, like, it's not scalable, the kind of stuff that I do. At least I never figured out how to. Like, you know, I, I wasn't making enough to really pay myself, so how could I have paid somebody else right. if I could even show them how to do it the way that I do? But um, I was always kind of aware of that and kind of struggling and bumping up against that. There were a lot of people in my community that were artists, and it was, like, really fun for a while. But I was just – I've always been, like, really practical. <laughs> Me too. I get it. <laughs> I, I needed, I needed, you know, I needed health insurance. I needed certain things, and I didn't want the thing that I loved the most to feel like it was bringing me down. Mm-hmm. And I was so struggling with the fact that I was working so hard, but I couldn't make like even like twenty grand a year. Yeah, I mean that's that's so hard. I yeah. and I think it's not like we're born 
knowing how to scale a business. And no. <laughs> I think, you know, you and I come from a really sim- a similar background, except that my mom wasn't an artist. She just had a lot of mental health problems. And so, like, no one was sitting down with me and explaining business to me or how to have a career no. or negotiate a yeah. salary or write a resume yeah. or anything, anything yeah. at all. And I, there are times when I've been like, wow, you know, I am a very practical person and I'm very scrappy like you. And I think that's where I've, how I've gotten as far as I have. But if I had had some of that guidance coming from my mom, my dad, I think my life would have been different. (laughs) You know what I mean? Absolutely. Like, that's like so clear to me because, um, I mean, it's I, I I can totally say this because it's like very open in our family, but like both of my parents struggle with mental health issues, and I love artists, but I think that can be a total trend. And there's this idea that you know people gravitate towards arts that have mental illness, which I actually think is like silly. But I almost think that was something that they thought about themselves, like, oh, well, we can't do normal jobs, so we're artists. Obviously, this is the only thing we can do. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, <laughs> which, you know, I consider myself an artist of sorts too. And I, I don't know, it, it's just kind of, it's just like the whole, the way that we kind of think about who, what being an artist means is actually kind of toxic in some ways. It can be very indulgent and very like, I don't know, it's almost a, a get out of jail free card in some ways. Now, mm-hmm. those things can be fine if you don't have six kids, but when you do certain life choices become a lot more complicated. I mean, I agree that it can be very indulgent and it, it kind of encourages toxic or destructive behaviors or like normalizes them, I guess. Like it I normalizes like, them. Yeah. yeah that's like, oh, word. You're an artist. You're supposed to be erratic or irresponsible yeah. or, I mean, you know. or angry or, I mean, you know, like, or poor, or, or poor, yeah, or, yeah, yeah, yeah. drinking, <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly, exactly, unstable, <laughs> and I feel like, I mean, um, even, even growing up, like, you know, becoming a teenager, being in my 20s, like, being surrounded by other creative people, there was a lot of that mindset that, that, like, if you were in a band, this is just how you were supposed to be, or if you were, exactly, you were supposed to be really volatile, you know? Exactly. Yeah. I mean, we have all these, you know, biopics about, you know, the art greatest artists of our generation, you know, and we always know how they're going to end. It's like this great shooting star kind of, you know, burns the brightest candle at both ends whole deal. But um, yeah, so that's like how I grew up uh, in that type of energy. And I always was trying to create these like routines for myself, this structure for myself. And I really clung to it. And so in some ways, having a nor- a job was, like, actually this huge relief. And then I could just make things that could be for me. Like, in my house, I could make curtains. And I didn't have to be like, oh, I have to put these online. <laughs> yeah. To sell these. So it was kind of freeing in some ways. But um, I did work a lot of kind of crappy jobs when I was getting my footing and just sort of like, cause you know, like I said, my parents did not have day jobs. They had not had day jobs since they were in their, in college. And, um, so 
So I didn't really know where to start. So I, I did some, like, really bad service jobs, got taken advantage of in a lot of ways for a long time. And one of the reasons that I did that is because, um, like, we didn't – we were kind of homeschooled, but it was relaxed. There was a term that was thrown around. I don't know if people still – talk about this or if this is still a trend, but it was called unschooling. So it's just kind of homeschooling, but uh, no curriculum. And so when I uh, went to get a job, you know, I didn't even have a GED. So there were like roadblocks there. So I worked a lot of jobs, the jobs I could get that were kind of like, you know, at a bagel shop or juice bar or whatever. Yeah, And yeah. then in, in 2016, I got my GED with the help of, like, a community center, which was great. Um, and now I'm doing, like, community college, and I'm doing an office job from home, which is amazing. Um, but, you know, like, when I was younger, I really, really poured myself into the rugs because I really just didn't see any other options. And right. I still love it. Like, I still love the rugs, but, like, that's kind of one of the reasons why I just was doing it like crazy because I thought that was my thing. That was going to be – and if I couldn't do that, then I didn't know what I could do. Right, right. Growing up in, in a lower-class environment, I think that, like, if you're middle-class or upper-class, or upper class, you don't understand all the ways – all the challenges, I guess you would say, that you face coming out of that because you are already facing a bunch of setbacks as soon as your adulthood begins because you don't you don't know what to do, I guess is what I'm saying. Like you don't have that guidance and support along the way that can set yeah, you up. Yeah, totally. Us. Like it's not just the money. Like, yes, the money opens doors too, right? But it's like connections. Yes, connection. And oh, my God. Seriously. I'm not connected to anyone. <laughs> understanding the culture that a certain type of uh, industry all operates with or, mm-hmm. you know, knowing the way that your resume should look for a certain type of job. And, you know, a lot of the, the, the reasons why I had a hard time came to individual choices my parents made, but some of them were just issues that were, you know, American issues like, the public schools that I grew up around were extremely gutted. My parents didn't feel safe to send us to them. They were bad. They had lead paint. It was, like, considered dangerous. Mm-hmm. And the only schools that were considered safe were these, like, Christian private schools that were, like, a really far bus trip away. And they were like, well, that's stupid. Like, we're not doing that. And we also can't afford it. You know? And, and like, like, both those options suck. Like, public schools should be funded. I think people don't realize how messed up, like, the school system in America is. If you go to a pretty average public school, your parents are lower or lower middle class, you're not set up for success after that. No. You're not. Like, you don't – I can tell you, I went to public school for most of school, and I was even in the gifted program. Um, Mm -hmm. In high school, I got a scholarship to go to a prep school, and when I got there, I couldn't believe – how far behind the curriculum that my public school had been, and I was in, like, the advanced classes. It just doesn't get talked about enough because, like, you know, maybe I had, like, a very odd situation. Not a lot of people can relate to it, but I don't think people understand, like, how underfunded public schools are, which is kind of the only option for so many Americans, probably most Americans. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, Rose. Rose's work is just so amazing, so stunning, and just 
so inspiring. You can find Rose on Instagram at Brave Hand Textiles, and her Etsy shop is www.etsy.com slash shop slash brave hand textiles. And don't worry, I will share those links in the show notes. You don't have to memorize them right now. (laughs) Who's ready to start crafting out of all those poor, sad, unwanted t-shirts? And who wants to accept Rose's macrame challenge? I want to see even more cool stuff made out of bad, sad t-shirts. So in our conversation, I mentioned a section in Sylvia Plath's The Bell Jar about rag rugs, and I just want to read it to you because it's even better than I remembered. And also, I guess I've just been basically waiting my whole life to read some Sylvia Plath aloud on a podcast about fashion. So join me for our cultural corner. This seemed a dreary and wasted life for a girl with 15 years of straight A's, but I knew that's what marriage was like, because cook and clean and wash was just what Buddy Willard's mother did from morning till night, and she was the wife of a university professor and had been a private school teacher herself. Once when I visited Buddy, I found Mrs. Willard braiding a rug out of strips of wool from Mr. Willard's old suits. She'd spent weeks on the rug, and I had admired the tweedy browns and greens and blues patterning the braid, but after Mrs. Willard was through, instead of hanging the rug on the wall the way I would have done, she put it down in place of her kitchen mat, and in a few days it was soiled and dull and indistinguishable from any mat you could buy for under a dollar in the five and ten. And I knew that in spite of all the roses and kisses and restaurant dinners a man showered on a woman before he married her— What he secretly wanted when the wedding service ended was for her to flatten out underneath his feet like Mrs. Willard's kitchen mat. It's no wonder that this has stuck with me for decades now. I mean, if you haven't read The Bell Jar yet, I recommend it so wholeheartedly. Yes, it is about depression, a failed suicide attempt, and being in a mental institution. I have experienced all of those things myself firsthand, but... It's also such a deeply feminist book, and it shows me both how much and how little has changed since it was published in 1963, especially when we talk about women and marriage and, you know, women's work being taken seriously. Well, with that, now that we've concluded the clothes horse cultural corner, I guess it's time for us to get back into my conversation with Celicia. So here we go. Most kids' clothes are really terrible and tacky, and there's a reason why, which we're going to get into. But one of the things that really, I don't know, it kind of has dictated how children's clothing has been made since the 70s even a little bit before, is this fear of children burning up in their clothing. Combustion. We're going to talk about choking and strangling and all kinds of things too. But (laughs) fire has been a major hangup and probably not surprising to anybody who's listening here, uh, this concern about children burning up in their clothes is mostly hysteria mixed with 
evil corporate overlords. So I was gonna say, yeah, the tobacco, like people falling oh. asleep smoking, and they don't want to be blamed. It wasn't the cigarette, totally. It was the pajamas. It's like kind of crazy how much we're gonna talk about cigarettes in an episode about children. Actually, oh, first off, we're gonna start talking about fire retardants because fire retardants are on so much stuff around us. You know, children's sleepwear. Not as much as it used to be, but it's still there. Uh, Furniture, carpet, curtains, car seats, anything that contains foam, uh, wall hangings. If you stay in a hotel, probably everything made of fabric in that room is is sprayed Mm. in flame retardant. Um, College dorms, anywhere where like a lot of people are residing and there's carpet – mattresses, you name it. Hospitals. Yeah, hospitals. That's a great one. Any sort of facility like that. Um, So what if I told you, tell me how you feel about this, Alicia, that 97% of Americans have toxic flame retardants in their blood. I know, right? That is – I like that it's specific to Americans. Yeah. Well, we we have – flame retardant madness here in the US. I mean, I think I've I feel that in a lot of ways like many things in this country, we both overregulate and underregulate. We overregulate on things that aren't important but are very profitable, and we underregulate on things that are actually dangerous but not a huge money-making opportunity. I can't, you know, not recently, but, you know, a few years ago, everything you know, that I would buy or see everything would have a California warning, mm-hmm. right? State of California. Because mm-hmm. they identified everything that had all the chemicals that are now in our bloodstream. <laughs> um, and I don't know that anyone was ever like, oh, I'm not going to buy that. I know. I feel like it. it's like it went too far. Because you could like walk up to an Applebee's and there'd be a sign outside telling you that there were things in there that the state of California had determined caused cancer. And you were like, is it the food? Is it the takeout containers? <laughs> it's actually all. It was probably the flame retardant stuff over on all over all the upholstery and carpet, among other things. But like, like so many things that happen around us, this is not something that anyone has ever told me about. I had to find it all on my own. And you're a parent. I know, and I'm a parent exactly. And like, trust me, kids have been surrounded by this stuff for decades. Like. You and I are lucky we, that we don't haven't grown an extra arm at this point. <laughs> they tried a lot of things out in the 80s. They did. They did. They totally tried a lot of stuff. So flame retardants right now in 2021 can be found everywhere on earth, even on, in the dust on the surfaces of things in our home. It's really terrifying. So, well, like why are we concerned about flame retardants? Well, Flame retardants began as an additive to gasoline called bromine in the golden era when gas contained both lead and bromine, and people were getting sick and dying right and left from it. And in fact, the story of flame retardants is not unlike the story of lead and gas because they both kind of came up at the same time. They're both really bad for people. There were lots of you know, big corporate companies that were like trying to hide the impact of all this. But what ultimately happened with lead is that finally enough was enough and lead is not in gas anymore. But flame retardants, they're like a success story where they just keep going strong, you know? I know now. You know now, right? But like you 
probably didn't know before. So fire retardants have been identified not only as carcinogens, which means they're cancer-causing, but as mutagens, which means agents that mutate genetic material. I have to say this again. Flame retardants have been around for in, – in like in a massive way in a, for about 50 years now. So like most people on the earth have grown up with them, you know, in one way or another for most of their lives. Scientists now understand that they are they are what are called first-class endocrine disruptors, which this isn't a medical podcast. So what does that mean? Well, dim, dim, dim. in children, it causes learning difficulties, IQ deficits, behavioral disorders, hyperactivity. There's also some stuff there for the adults, including diminished fertility, miscarriages, premature births, obesity, advanced puberty, thyroid hormonal problems in postmenopausal women, and an increased risk of ALS. And these are like Ma- major, major. Reading about flame retardants today, I'm like, wow, why don't we ever talk about this? I have so many friends who have fertility problems. I have had multiple friends in the past year alone who have had a premature birth. Um, tons of friends who have a lot of other hormonal related issues. Mm-hmm. You, you can't tell me that this is just a coincidence, you know? According to the Chicago Tribune, the level of certain flame retardants doubled in the blood of adults every two to five years between 1970 and 2004. So every few years, they would double. Then a few years later, they would double again for a period of 34 years. Because we were, we were more flammable? <laughs> We were more worried. Yeah, I know. I know. In a 2014 study of California daycare centers, researchers found flame retardants in 100% of the dust samples. A recent Chinese study indicated that there are also flame retardants. This is very intriguing to me. In e-cigarettes. But there's no fire. I know. I know. And these chemicals have been consistently found in the blubber of Arctic sea mammals. So it's not surprising to you that these chemicals are clearly everywhere. And it's even less surprising when you know that the global consumption of flame retardant chemicals is projected to top 7 billion pounds per year by 2022, which is next year. The irony of it all is that in the quantities in which they're typically employed, Flame retardants don't actually retard flame very much, meaning that they're not really stopping fires, especially, I mean, like they're being overused. I mean, one could argue that perhaps they don't need to be used at all, but they are being substantially overused in an abundance of caution because, you know, like hotels and nursing homes and universities and hospitals and apartment buildings, Everybody is afraid of being sued Yep. in the off chance that there's a fire. Mm-hmm. Well, how did this all start? How did we all get flame retardant madness? Well, we need to go back in time to the middle of the 20th century. In the 50s, a lot of clothes were made of rayon, both kids' clothing and adults. It was a super inexpensive, lightweight synthetic that really came up in popularity during World War II as there were shortages for cotton and silk. And after the war, kind of like how after the recession, all the retailers were like, hey, you know what? We've been selling all our customers poly and they don't care. We'll keep doing it. Mm -hmm. Retailers back then were like, hey, customers don't seem to care that they're still wearing rayon clothes. 
we'll keep doing it. Well, rayon is very, very flammable. It will go up in flames almost instantly. And there were stories of people basically turning into human torches because their rayon yeah. clothes caught fire. So one thing with rayon is that it's gross to produce, but it isn't rayon's also like an artificial? Mm-hmm. It's usually made from natural like it start it starts somewhere natural, like you know, it might be made of like pulp. And then it's yeah, it goes through this uh complete chemical uh breakdown to then be extruded. So it's not like um natural fibers are, you know, short. Mm-hmm. Think of wool or hair, cotton, whatever. So they have to break down, uh, it comes from different trees. It just depends on the brand name, but it's a disgusting, mm-hmm. toxic process to take something that was a tree and then turn it into something that seems a little bit nicer than polyester. So, right. Cause it does, it feels, it feels like a natural fiber and like, I guess it kind of is in that it's not plastic, but it's, it's just like, artificial. it's artificial. Yeah. It's like, you know how artificial flavorings can come from natural sources or like artificial colorings. Like there's that one shade of red food coloring that comes from bugs or something. It's like that, you know? But I'm not surprised that, yeah, that it, that it goes up in flames. It's, you know. Yeah. And especially the version of rayon that people were wearing back then, which was designed to be so silk-like. Mm-hmm. So it was very thin, very airy, flowy, you know, it, it was, it would, it would catch on fire. So everyone was wearing all these, highly flammable clothing, but they were also living a lot differently than we do now. So for one, a lot of houses relied literally on an open flame somewhere in their home for heating and cooking. Mm. Like there was literally something on fire all the time in the house to keep it warm, whether it was a fireplace, a wood or coal fired stove, that kind of stuff, right? What we think of as a stove now was not that common. And central heating was also pretty rare. Next, and this is really important, people smoked. People smoked a lot. Like, you were, I swear, you were over 12, mm-hmm. you're smoking. Tobacco, huge industry, everyone's smoking. And, I mean, I've seen even how people look at where it's socially acceptable to smoke change in my lifetime. But let me tell you, back then, people smoked everywhere. I did. Not in the 70s, but yeah, when I smoked. Back in the 70s when you were like smoking. yeah, All that shag carpeting. I mean, people smoked all the time and they smoked everywhere and they would fall asleep smoking. They weren't careful about putting out their cigarettes at all, so they started a lot of fires. And they left lighters and matches, this is like crazy to me, but it's true, in the reach of children. Like there was an era in which there had to be a lot of public service messages (laughs) reminding people not to leave lighters and matches out where children could get them. Like the the phrase children playing with fire, like that was a real thing, okay? So there were a lot of fires and a lot of people were burned or died from fire-related injuries. And, you know, their clothes would catch on fire and, I mean, they would die, right? Now, kids' clothes were especially problematic at this time because they were made of rayon, they were a lot flowier. Kids just dressed differently, right? Specifically, for example, there was this Jean Autry uh, cowboy costume that included a an incredibly flammable pair of rayon chaps that had fringe. 
That costume alone was the cause of 100 lawsuits between 1945 and 1953 in which children died or were severely disfigured when the pants caught on fire. They're playing with lighters and matches. Yeah, and their parents are like smoking cigarettes all over the place and then there's like a wood stove in the corner. I mean, it's it's bad. Maybe they were burning some candles too. So there were just so many tragic events related to both children and adults being burned when their clothes caught on fire. And that led to the 1953 passage of the Flammable Fabrics Act, which regulated, among other things, which fabrics could be used for clothing. Now, I've already, spoiler here, told you that there were other factors at play that were leading to people's clothing catching on fire. But as far as the government was seeing it, it was the fabric that was the problem. Mattresses too, right? Weren't mattresses a bit? Oh my God. Yeah. And like the thing, and couches. Okay. And so basically, if your mattress or your couch catches on fire in like 1965, your whole house burns down. Like mater- everything was just different then, right? Okay, and, not the last. And to a certain extent, a lot more flammable, right? So I do want to talk a little bit about the natural flammability of fabrics as a whole. Natural fabrics, and we're including rayon in that because it's like an organic material, right? Mm-hmm. Rayon, cotton, linen, silk, these are very flammable. I mean, they're like, you know, it's like going out and burning Kidlin. you know, some plants, right? Synthetics like polyester, nylon, acrylic, etc., they are less flammable because they're plastic, but they will actually melt to the skin. So you won't burst into flames, but you will get some serious burns. And I don't know if they make these anymore, Slisha, but do you remember those like zip-up footy pajamas that we all wore when we were kids mm-hmm. that were 1,000% synthetic and even like the feet were like plastic? Yeah, they were like, like textured plastic. right on the bottom. Yeah. I mean, I have this very visceral memory of my mom letting me watch, and I was very young. I had to have been seven, eight tops. She let me watch this made-for-TV movie with her that was based on a true story about a little boy named David whose dad kidnapped him, took him to Disneyland, and then that night – it was like a bad divorce situation. That night, he set the hotel room on fire in the hopes that basically like – if he couldn't have a son, no one would. Wow. Well, the little boy survived. Once again, this is a real story. He survived, but he had burns over his entire body. And the biggest problem was that the pajamas, he was wearing those footy pajamas, had melted to his body. So yes, the pajamas never caught on fire, but he was severely injured in the hospital for years. There was you would see him on like news shows from time to time like checking in on this little boy named David. Anyway, that's a way to scare yeah, like just to yeah. Keep the fear in people. But they still made those horrible pajamas for a really long time. I like hate those things. I think they're called sleepers. I don't feel like they exist anymore, I hope. But they were 100% plastic. Yeah. Those kinds of pajamas are a direct result of the flammable fabrics act. And what's going to come in a few years that's going to be even worse. So flammability testing, it's still a thing that happens in a clothing and accessories. Mm-hmm. I have had a few things in my career fail the flammability test, uh, specifically scarves, which yeah. you know I'm glad they failed because I don't want anybody to die when they're out at a bar and lean over and their scarf catches on fire in that little candle. You know, like 
I'm I'm fine with that. But as far as I know, and you can correct me otherwise, everything we buy technically, that fabric needs to have a certificate on file saying that it passed, yes. right? What do they do in these flammability tests? Okay. Not a scientist. <laughs> okay. But but I yeah, but I've had to deal with this a lot. So there's two parts. There's fabric, actually maybe three, fabric, and then the garment. Mm-hmm. Um, and then kids' flammability is like another, kids' safety is like a whole other layer on top of it. But, you know, imagine I'm clumsy when I cook sometimes, like if my sleeve caught on fire, and then the whole sweatshirt just went up in flames. Mm-hmm. That wouldn't be ideal. Um, so the testing is the way they do a lot of um, laboratory testing is you have to have a standard. They'll cut out the same size piece of fabric whatever, 10 times, right? You can't just test one little you know, swatch of fabric. You need to make sure because a bolt of fabric could mm-hmm. be 3,000 yards mm-hmm. by 60 inches wide. So they'll sample, you know, hopefully across um, the breadth of that, of that fabric for that purchase order. And it'll go into like a little box, a little booth. And there'll be, there's more than one test for sure, but they'll light it on fire and it needs to extinguish in a certain amount of time. So if it just goes up in flames, like if it's like a, um, the end of TNT, like in the cartoons, it's going to fail. So there's a length of time. And I think there's also like proximity of the flame and you guys call in, correct all of this information. It's not right, but (laughs) I know I think you're right. I've seen videos. And if you think about, you know, an adult clothing or stuff that anybody wears or even uh, home goods, like big, fluffy, soft, furry things, Mm -hmm. that's, that's all like kindling. So making um high pile which is you know just really really fluffy um i don't know if this is a better way to describe high pile um cotton fleece is it, you can't mm-hmm. do it because it's just gonna burn yeah it's just gonna burn so there's different requirements of if the front of the fabric is smooth if the back of it is fuzzy or brushed um the weight of the fabric so you can skirt around a lot of this in the weight of the fabric. So a lighter fabric um, versus a heavier fabric and the designation of, is it a French terry? So is it loops on the back or is it brush? So it's like fleece and fuzzier. They're going to act really differently, even if they start out the same fabric. Um, And then also the blend. So if you can add enough polyester, um, the requirements, you know, may be different. So it's a good thing, except, you know, the repercussions that it then has that we all have, our bodies are full <laughs> yeah. of chemicals. Yeah. Um, like, good. I don't, you know, lean over, I want to mm-hmm. lean over a candle and right, end up right. in the hospital, but body's full of chemicals. And I mean, that's how, another reason that so many clothes are synthetic, because they do burn less easily. Um, once again, they will melt, but like, we're not doing melting tests on clothes. Um, it's really just this fear that someone will come into contact with flame and immediately be engulfed in flames. So yeah, so things are, things are tested and like, you know, they're tested because especially here in the United States and I'm, we're speaking about American 
policies around this like flammability and other safety stuff. But, you know, they exist in to some extent or, to, or another across the world. But I would say definitely the United States is the most hardcore about this stuff um, for reasons we're going to get into. But there's also this fear of lawsuits. I mean, that is what it really comes down to. So if you bought a garment from somewhere and it caught on fire, you could sue that retailer, right? Well, what that retailer is going to do is it's going to turn around and sue the supplier because they have them sign a contract, it's their vendor agreement that says basically like, hey, if someone gets hurt by what we buy from you, you're going to be responsible for it. So it's like that lawsuit begats another lawsuit. The retailer is going to want the supplier to have done that flammability testing because if the basically it's like a cover your ass kind of thing. If the supplier hasn't done that and the retailer technically doesn't have that flammability test certificate on file, it could make the retailer more responsible from a legal perspective. Mm-hmm. So it's yeah, it's complicated, right? Um, I will tell you, I have worked for places that did not do that, um, which was scary to me to come in and be like, wait, you you don't check on any of that and you do all this fabric development, that's like really, that will destroy your business, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and you don't even have language about this in your vendor guide. Like this is very, very bad. But the big guys, the big companies, they do this um, because once again, they don't want you to sue them when you catch on fire. Yeah. And there's explicit language and, um, you know, most of the big places you would buy clothing from their vendor um, guides or agreements. Like are- a book. A huge, yeah, huge manual and a huge book of of all the requirements that that have to be met. Maybe some of them not enough, you know, but Mm -hmm. it's what they want from their suppliers, not necessarily what we want from them. Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. So going back in time, back in the 50s and 60s, the average American was smoking a ton inside their house, as I mentioned. And the majority of fires within the home were either caused by the open flames that I mentioned being used for cooking and heating or smoking because people weren't bursting into flames, right? Uh, The houses weren't getting struck by lightning. (laughs) Like the sources of fire were pretty straightforward. Now, of course, that means we have to talk about the tobacco companies, right? Because they've got some skin in the game, if you will. Mm -hmm. And I was laughing as I was reading about this and thinking about this because we know now that the tobacco companies were up to all kinds of nefarious and dishonest behavior for decades, right? They basically didn't say anything true ever. Uh, I mean, they even turned feminism into a means of selling women cigarettes with Virginia Slims. Virginia Slims, yeah. I, I was a ball kid for the women's Virginia Slim tennis tournament that used to be in Philadelphia. Oh my God. I was like the little kid that threw the tennis ball to the tennis players. Imagine the cigarette company <laughs> sponsored the women's tennis championship. Yeah, I remember that. I don't think they do that anymore. I think like tennis sports, and, like smoking yeah. have like, you know, yeah, gone separate ways because it turns out it's funny to think. I mean, this is, this is not what I'm about to tell you guys, but I think it's funny that there was a time and it was a very long period of time where people did not think that cigarettes were bad for your health. Like, it was so hidden. And literally, there were ads that would be like, the number one doctor-recommended cigarette. Like, what? Isn't that crazy to think about? Yeah, mid-menthols, right? 
Yeah. Anyway, so the tobacco companies were seeing that a lot of fires were being caused by smoking because it's also like much like these people thought that doctors were literally recommending certain brands of cigarettes. They also didn't think that cigarettes could cause fires in their house. Like there was no education around that because it was a bad look for the tobacco companies. So the tobacco companies wanted to ensure that the blame for these fires did not land on them and, you know, the smoking. So they spent a lot of money and a lot of time lobbying to divert blame from these fires to the furniture companies, textile makers, and of course, children's clothing. Like that was a good story. Like we got to protect the kids from these flammable clothes that they wear, not mm. the cigarettes being smoked around them. <laughs> Isn't that crazy to think about? Or the matches that they're playing with. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That you're just leaving out. Even though, and this was also a thing, <laughs> at this point, cigarettes were different in terms of the materials that made them. And so – they were prone to bursting into full flame on their own and creating a rapidly spreading fire on their own if they were left unattended. I'm picturing – because, yeah, I mean, I smoked for a very long time. If you just set a cigarette down, it will eventually extinguish. Right. That wasn't the case then. No, it was not. And so, like, if you were like, oh, someone's at the door, let me put my cigarette down that I'm smoking here on the couch and you put it on the ashtray – it could start a fire while you were answering the door. You know, it was, it was just something to think about. So put a pin in that because we're going to come back to that, that cigarettes were actually highly flammable. So we're going to fast forward to the 70s when the toxic compounds that we now know as flame retardants became ubiquitous as governments around the world were persuaded by corporate campaigns that flame retardants were like the essential fire safety tool Basically, the only way we're going to save all of these innocents' lives was to spray everything with bromine, right? So we have to meet the Gottwalds of Virginia. They are one of the most – the 100 richest families in America. They are the most powerful shareholders in a company called Albemarle Chemical Company based in Charlotte, North Carolina. Okay. What they do – well, we'll get to that in a second. They also love to support Republicans. In 2016, Floyd Gottwald Jr. gave 50000 to Trump Victory, a joint fundraising committee for Donald Trump's presidential campaign, continuing a family tradition of Republican funding that goes back for decades, and he surely has given Donald Trump more money since then. You've never heard of this family, and that is because they keep a very low profile, and I would say it's probably because for decades, about 50 years now, they have been blanketing the planet with toxic chemicals known as flame retardants. Like this is their game. Albemarle Chemical. There's a couple other companies alongside them, but they're like one of the big guys. In the early 70s, they began to lobby hard with a platform that was just completely built on hysteria about fires and children dying in fires and all these innocent victims and just tons of untrue info about the nature of fires. Can you imagine that meeting where they were like, oh, I have an idea. Yeah, I know. I know. And they were lobbying for the full adoption of flame retardants on just about anything fabric that customers would ever touch. And guess who their partner in this campaign was? The tobacco companies. Win-win. I know. And they have all this money to play with, right? So 
they got together, they got all their best minds in the room, and they said, listen, we're going to mount a highly successful, highly aggressive scare campaign to create a perceived need for fire retardants while also averting attention and blame from cigarettes. So they crafted regulations and lobbied legislatures to adopt them. Um, And they were able to do that because they had like all the money. Uh, They attacked any scientific findings that they didn't like. They ridiculed public health advocates who were kind of like, oh, these chemicals are dangerous. And uh, actually, most fires are started by cigarettes and like stoves, right? And letting children play with matches. Yeah, matches. Uh, They would like bribe and spin journalists to put out stories that were like about all these tragic fires that started because they started on the couch or something and all the whole family died, you know, that kind of stuff. And they bought political access with just millions upon millions upon millions of dollars in campaign contributions. Just all the classic bad, bad guy moves, right? Well, it paid off because in 1972, Congress passed the Consumer Product Safety Act, which established the Consumer Product Safety Commission. Now, this is not an attack on that commission, There are plenty of dangerous products that have been out there that we would have used even now if if it weren't for these laws around it. So this is not like an anti-regulation thing at all. I think a lot about um, the episode of The Simpsons where like Bart eats like a crustio that's made of metal and, you know, know, like that kind of stuff. Like the world would be a much dangerous, more dangerous place without this. So that is not what I'm going for here. But one part of that was like, hey – we have to stop everything in all the houses from catching on fire all the time. Just catching on fire, just randomly. That's just all that's happening. No, nothing else going on here. It's just these random fires. So the flame retardants on everything, everything fabric that you could buy at that point, including clothing for children. And I, I mean, studies have shown that, yes, in the 70s and the 80s, there was a huge decrease in children with burns from burning clothing and house fires. But in retrospect, experts can point to a lot of other reasons why that happened. You know, one was a switch from open flame heating and cooking to the stoves and furnaces that we know now, which are very safe comparatively. Uh, Attitudes around smoking changed, especially smoking in bed or around children. Uh, People got smarter about leaving matches and lighters in reach of children, you know, um, And another big thing happened in the late 70s where somebody finally said, hey, maybe cigarettes are part of the problem here. In 1978, Andrew McGuire, who was a burn survivor, started a grassroots campaign to prevent house fire deaths by changing the cigarette because he was like, hey, the thing about cigarettes is like if you walk away from one, they will just start a fire. You know, they're very dangerous, Mm -hmm. right? So he secured funding for an investigation into cigarettes and fires, which became the Cigarettes and Sofas, How the Tobacco Lobby Keeps the Home Fires Burning. I mean, that's like a burn. That is. That is. Right, for an investigation name, right? Uh, No pun intended. It's a burn. Uh, So then some other people got involved. Massachusetts Congressman Joe Moakley introduced legislation uh, for these like more, these less, I don't know, prone to fire cigarettes in the autumn of 1979 after a cigarette fire in his district. This was definitely a cigarette fire. 
killed a family of seven. Oh my God. Another senator from California jumped in on this bill for the same reason. Like these cigarette fires were happening all the time. And I think also at this point, the ability to investigate the cause of a fire was a lot better. And so you could actually say it was the cigarette that started it. So this process took years. There was so much arguing, so much lobbying, research. Cigarette companies were against this. But it led to fire-safe cigarettes, the cigarettes that we know now and love, right? (laughs) That will not just turn into a fire if you walk away from them. Uh, Of course, the tobacco industry was against this because, surprise, surprise, it's a little bit more expensive to make cigarettes that don't just start fires all the time. And yes – Cigarettes can still start fires, but it's sort of like you need to give it something to catch fire to. Like your baby pajamas. <laughs> like Yes, yes, exactly, exactly. So there were I, – I was – I seriously obviously went down a really big rabbit hole of people catching on fire and whatnot. Uh, I'm probably going to have really bad dreams tonight. No. But there were cases at this point in the late 70s and early 80s of – People dying in fires in their cars because of cigarettes. Cigarettes starting on fire and then just like the whole car would go up in flames. Like cigarettes were very, very, very dangerous. That said, we fixed cigarettes. (laughs) Houses are safer. There just aren't as many fires as there used to be. You know what I mean? But flame retardants are still on everything we own. And a lot of experts are kind of like, it's overkill for one. And uh, two, we don't really think it stops fires in the way that they think it does. Like the lives that may be saved with by these flame retardants certainly are outweighed by all the health problems that people have from exposure to flame retardants. Uh, Albemarle, the company I talked about earlier, has continued to churn out more and more and more of these flame retardants, even as periodically – you know, this, the science, the research, and then the law will say, okay, this one needs to go away. It's too dangerous. Yeah. And it's just because they are kind of doing this like bait and switch scam. Uh, when regulators ban one flame retardant. as a new one. The manufacturers will just tweak a molecule here and there, and then they'll produce a different, technically, legally different, but pretty much the same product and keep doing that until now they're not allowed to make that anymore. And they'll just rename it, get it back on the market. This is just repeat, repeat, repeat. So now I'm sure I've scared you about flame retardants. I know I got scared reading about all this. So the good news is that there are ways to reduce your exposure. First off, flame retardants have become less common in clothing. Thank God. Now because we do a lot more flame testing and there are other – which we're going to get into, there are other ways in which children's clothing is regulated that are are also stupid, but <laughs> ostensibly have made flame retardants on clothing not as important. That doesn't mean it doesn't happen. There are still a lot of clothes being made every year for children that are sprayed with this stuff. But it's still on so much other stuff that we buy, especially stuff that is around children. Uh The good news is if something has a flame retardant, thanks to basically the state of California, it generally has a label on it somewhere saying that. So you need to read the labels, read the tags. And these chemicals are still widely prevalent in furniture, all kinds of kids' stuff, home goods, electronics. 
Uh, so read the tags, read them. I was going to say, wouldn't it be interesting if instead of us having to label that things are toxic, you could just label it that you should be careful while you're smoking or. I know. I don't smoke in bed. Yeah. You know, <laughs> like that you kind of take thing. Take off your pajamas. Yeah. It's so crazy. So the good news also is that a new study has shown that changing the way you clean your house and just your daily habits can make a dramatic difference in the level of these toxic chemicals in your body. The combination of a better cleaning routine and more hand washing, which we're all doing this year, reduced flame retardants in women's bodies, like in their blood, by up to 74%. It's not all gone, but that's a huge, that's a huge difference. And so the bad news here is that most of this stuff, which I'm going to go through, means you have to clean a lot, which cleaning sucks, right? You have to wash your hands a lot, which if you're, you know, washing your hands a lot right now this year, then you're good. Keep it up after the pandemic passes. Uh, vacuum instead of sweeping because sweeping sort of just pushes it into the air, whereas a vacuum with a good, true HEPA filter will suck it all up because this is the unfortunate thing about flame retardants is that they flake off onto everything and they're in the dust in your house. So it's kind of like you have to reduce the dust in your house to not be like living in a sea of flame retardant. Uh after you vacuum, you need – and if it's like a hardwood floor, linoleum, whatever, you need to wet mop afterwards. And the one article I read said that you have to be sure – you can interpret this however you want – that the mop is wet but not too wet. I've been <laughs> so doing just, it all right? along. Yeah. Um, and use a mop that is not treated with fire retardants because a lot of them are, especially if it's sort of a fluffier kind of mop. So – you read once again they have to be labeled. Um, dust often and well, that is something I definitely do not do. I'm really bad at dusting. I gotta get on that. Opening your windows can be huge, although that does blow the particles outside. Uh fabrics that have been treated with flame retardants are usually certified for one year. If you wash them in your washing machine, like any other fabrics, the chemicals dissipate over time, which is a really good argument for buying used textiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, but once again, you wash it in your washing machine, it's going out into the water supply. Like this, this sucks. There's no like, way to win. That's my official verdict on this. This sucks. You can also stick to products, especially when we're talking about things you wear on your body, that use naturally retardant fabrics. Because now I guess it turns out that wool, silk, and untreated organic cotton aren't flame retardant, but they don't actually go up in flames in the same way as, say, rayon. Um, avoid foam. Like foam is one of the biggest culprits. It's inside your furniture. It's in a car seat. It's in pillows. Foam is a major problem. And you should read the labels on anything you buy that has foam in it because the manufacturers of furniture and other home goods are required to label it for inclusion or exclusion of flame retardant chemicals. So, you know, like when you buy like a pillow or something and it's got 97 tags. All those tags. Yes. That's where you look. If possible, you should try to avoid buying furniture and baby products that are filled with polyurethane foam because those are especially problematic. And some furniture companies and other home goods companies are actually like realizing that there's a market for non-flame retardant things. And so there's more and more of that out there is the good news too. And yes, I suppose technically you could be increasing your risk of catching on fire 
by, you know, getting rid of the flame retardants in your house. But the general consensus that I read is that most of this, like people are catching on fire in their houses, burning down stuff is just hysteria and Mm -hmm. like a really well planned media attack, basically like putting the right stories in the right places. So everybody thinks everything's catching on fire all the time, but it's really because people were smoking, you know? (laughs) Uh, yeah, so that's the story on flame retardants. Um, but there is still – I mean, there's still a lot of rules around what can be sold to kids. And it mostly – this is so bizarre to me, and hopefully you have some insight here too, Salisha, is the real hang-up seems to be we are really worried about kids' clothes catching on fire when they're in their pajamas. No, yeah. But we don't care if, if they're in regular clothes. And so a lot of – the weird regulations around kids' clothing or even just like the reason so many kids' clothes are super weird is that it's really important that it's very obvious that a garment is either day wear or night wear. And I think that that is so funny. So one of the reasons kids' clothes have lots of like bedazzling and trim and whatnot is so that they don't look like pajamas because it's sort of like – oh my God, if your kid falls asleep in their regular clothes, they might catch on fire. <laughs> the, risk, the risk is higher in bed. Somehow, right? But as a parent, um, I don't even know. Even my friends, like, I don't know if somebody tells you to make sure that they're always in pajamas when they're sleeping because they sleep as babies all the time. Yeah, well, and kids take naps. Would you be like, okay... Let's take off your regular clothes and put on your nap clothes to lay down. No. Kids fall asleep in cars, on floors, in public, in strollers. <laughs> kids are sleeping all the time except for when you do want them to sleep. Then they're not. And so this is like so silly. It's just so preposterous. But there are a lot of rules around sleepwear. Like they have to be flame resistant or fire resistant. Uh, they have to be really tight. Tight fitting. Yep. Yes. There's this concern that – if you are wearing a flowy nightgown, you're definitely going to catch on fire when mm-hmm. you're in bed. Like this is – it's just so silly. But like you can in the daytime totally go hang out in your John Bonet dress and be all floofy. It's totally fine because somehow the fire risk is lower when you're awake. Exactly. I just don't understand it, right? It's so silly. And everything gets a sticker or gets like a bright, obnoxious label that it's not sleepwear. Yes. And in fact, if you were like – there's a lot of clothes out there that are sort of like a stretchy pair of pants with a stretchy shirt, right, that you could wear to bed or not. They will literally have a sticker on them that says, like, this is not sleepwear. And, you know, it could be, like, dangerous to sleep in this or something. But you're like, it's just a cotton T-shirt and some leggings. Like, that's pajamas. Come on, right? Uh, so I know that there's, like, a lot of, you know, conversation or, like, strategy around, like, the kind of prints that are on these clothes so they – don't look like pajamas. Um, the embellishment is like a big part of that because I've been like, why are kids' clothes so tacky? <laughs> and that's sure why you don't sleep in them. Yes, in fact, there's almost like a level of discomfort that is engineered into these clothes. So, like, you might put big choke-proof sequins. I guess they would be heat applied or something, so you're not choking on them on a shirt, so that it would be uncomfortable to lay down and fall asleep in it. Yeah, you would do the heat the heat set fake sequins mm-hmm. on the little sizes, and then on the bigger sizes, you could do real sequins or like the 
the tape sequence. Yeah, because this is what you have to think about. Like, you have to bedazzle the clothes so that they aren't too comfortable, but they can't, you can't have anyone choking on it either. So it's like, what do you do? You have to find the balance between going up in flames and and choking or being strangled in the school bus door. Oh my gosh. I mean, so this brings us back to like, okay, so this obsession with this idea of sleepwear versus daywear means there's all this embellishment. Some of it has to be very strategically applied so that it's not dangerous, like from a choking perspective and, or so you don't get stuck in the school bus door. So once again, it brings you to like, okay, well, this is driving up the cost of this stuff. How is it so cheap still? It's like the whole children's wear industry is built on like a financial house of cards, I think. Like one year, no one has any babies. The whole industry goes bankrupt yeah. or something. Even, I mean, to a level of like when oil prices go up or the price of cotton goes up, it's a panic. Yeah, I'm sure. I'm sure because it's like every last cent. And I thought like working in fast fashion, it was about every last cent. But this is like next level. Like you talking about hedging cotton. It's less than it's less than a cent. So it's you know you go to the fourth or the fifth decimal on something. That is insane. Third, maybe third. Third and fourth, maybe wow. So the other thing that you pointed out too is that like I mean, it's kind of like kids' clothes are this like environmental nightmare because you know they're they're frequently synthetic, so kids don't catch on fire as fast, and they have all of these nonsense wasteful trims that are there just to like mm-hmm. make sure they don't look like pajamas so lots of plastic stuff thrown yep. on right and then you pointed out something that like I had totally forgotten about that applies to almost every line of kids clothing out there how they all come on those dumb plastic hangers tiny yes. tiny hangers they all do right it's not just my recollection no they all they all do I mean, I think like if it's a really high end clothing, I mean, I, I that's a foreign world to me. I don't me either, even know, yeah. but all the little kids' clothes, it's always like, do you want to keep the hanger? They would ship on the hanger specifically, yeah, because the store doesn't want to deal with the hangers either. So you like no. have to take the hanger with you when you buy it. Ugh. it's like pass the burden onto the consumer. And I don't know who's hanging up little tiny like kids. Oh, it's so bizarre. Like, pants and like little tiny kids' t shirts. And the other thing about kids' clothes that also drives me crazy, and I always think of, which I think this company doesn't exist anymore, Gymboree, R.I.P., being this like this obsession of the head-to-toe look so that your, you know, your kid's grandma or aunt or your friend can go to Gymboree and not only buy them the dress, the leggings, the little jacket, the undershirt, but also the socks, the shoes the headband, the sunglasses, the little purse, right? They're like $150 in on all these tiny clothes. And it's just so wasteful. It's so wasteful. All the accessories, yeah. Yeah, it's insane. It's so, so frustrating. Even dress clothes. I mean, we would have to get really, you know, dressed up for, I don't know, family things or some certain holidays with like – um. Tights or like pantyhose, mm-hmm. like dress shoes that you wore once a year because they didn't fit anyway. And that was just, you know, for, for special occasions. But then, yeah, all of the other buying like a complete, a complete outfit. <laughs> yeah. 
for each thing. Like you didn't wear, like everything had to be worn together and then you'd wear the next thing that was all of it together. I mean, think about your dress shoes when you were a little kid. You'd wear them like twice, you know, like your like church or special event shoes. Mm-hmm. You wore them like twice and they didn't fit you anymore and they were like brand new. Good business to be. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it is. It is. It's like – you're, it's like funny now when you when you reach adulthood and you're like, oh my god, I've had the same shoes for like 20 years or something, you know, got them in high school or something. And but like when you're a kid, things are in and out of your life so fast because you're growing, you know. My feet, yeah, yeah, I had big feet when I was a little kid, so that was awkward too because since I had big feet, I was wearing like women's shoes mm-hmm. and like probably in middle school. Mm-hmm. Um, so I know your pain. I. I remember in third grade, even though I was the smallest kid in class, because we'd have to line up by height to get our photos, like our school pictures taken. The only person- By height? Yeah. For some reason. I don't know. So I'd be the last because I was the smallest. There was one year uh, that there was a person in my class who had dwarfism. And so that person was smaller than me, but like barely actually. Um, And nonetheless, I could, in third grade, I remember I could start wearing a woman's size five shoe. Which is so tiny. I know, but I mean, like you know, my feet by junior high were like full size, okay, big size women's feet. You know, when I was like so really able to buy the five was like a big deal. But then I was wearing like little kids' clothes still. So I I know the pain of the big feet, and you're wearing like the grown up lady shoes to school. Mm-hmm. Um, but a thick heel, like a yeah. good square heel. Just wearing a pump just to class. <laughs> but I I mean, it is. It's just like I think. When I think about kids' clothes, more than anything, kids' clothes, there are, are way more of them in the world than there are kids. They're barely worn. It's like there needs to be more opportunity for resale. But I think that what makes it a problem or just not worth it for anyone to get into is that these clothes are so cheap in the first place that like how are you going to resell a pair of leggings that got worn once that cost five bucks? What are you going to sell them for that's going to make it worth your time? Like there's just no way to make the dollars and cents work because I don't know how the industry that's making them brand new is making it work in the first place. You know what I mean? Uh, Yeah. Like I just – I think that's why there isn't like a posh mark of children's clothing. Oh. Because like how do you make it work? Interesting. I I know you can get kids' clothes from ThreadUp. I'm looking at it right now and it's like girls must haves under $10. Girls new with tags from $6. Like this is what we're looking at here. And so the only way you can make a lot of money off of selling used kids clothes is to sell a shit ton of them basically. You know, like your average person is going to sell it at a yard sale for 50 cents a piece or maybe take it to the consignment shop. And so I feel like that's how so many kids clothes end up not being reworn basically. It's just like how do you make it make sense because people – want used clothes to be cheaper than new clothes. Yeah. How do you, what do you do with a $5 t-shirt? Yeah. Suddenly it's $2. Well, is it worth your time to take a photo of that t-shirt, list it on the site and then take it to the post office? Like, no. Right. So I I don't know what the solution is there. I, I, you know, as a person who, when I had a small child, I didn't have any friends with small children. I didn't, I couldn't do hand-me-downs with anyone, you know? Like I would just donate all of Dylan's clothes to the like the women's shelter. I mean, there was nothing else to do with it, right? I'm sure that there are companies 
doing some better things. Hopefully there are. There are. Mainstream ones. Yes. Um, with maybe more natural dyes and less chemicals. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't know that those are actually accessible to most people, but that's the problem. And I would be interested to hear what listeners have to say, but I started looking around at this stuff. And when I got to a place where I was like, oh, these clothes are like gender neutral and they seem like they're going to last a long time and they can fit them for, you know, extended period of time. And, you know, they're not coated in chemicals and all that. They're really expensive and like kind of full circle to where we began the conversation kids wear their clothes for such a short period of time, it's really hard to be okay spending 40 or $60 on a t-shirt for them. That's crazy. You know? So it's like, what do you do then? Unless you're going to have a bunch of kids and they're all going to do hand-me-downs. That's a, then it makes sense. But I also just don't feel like for the most of us, like with the state of the world right now, that we're really envisioning having a whole army of children. I feel like – agreed. I feel like – I Maybe it's just where I grew up because there definitely were like a lot of kids' consignment shops. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. you don't see a ton of consignment shops anymore. Maybe you see vintage stores, but they don't always say they're consignment shops. There are some. Like there's that one chain. Um, I can't even think of the name of it right now, but it's like a franchise chain, like Once Upon a Child or something. Okay. And I've totally bought stuff there in the past. But I feel like there are not as many consignment shops for kids' clothes as there used to be because – new clothes are so cheap for yeah. kids. How do you compete? You know, like if you're going to go buy a t-shirt for $4.99, you want it to be brand new then, right? Why not? Well, it's more work. It's, it's so much easier yet to grab a t-shirt where you're getting groceries or... Exactly. Exactly. And we've priced out secondhand clothing. So, I mean, you know, people have reached out to me, like listeners asking me, you know, how can I be more sustainable about my kids' clothes. And I'm like, I mean, buying them secondhand is your only option. And I know that's really hard. Um, you know, thrifting, uh, although some, some of these – the other thing about these clothes is that some of them are such low quality that you wash them twice and they're covered with pills and disgusting. Mm-hmm. And you're like, who wants to put that on their child? Like, I get that. So I, I don't have an easy answer here, unfortunately. I think it's like to probably join some – buy nothing groups on Facebook. And uh, I also belong to a bunch of yard sale groups on Facebook where people are selling like whole lots of kids clothes all the time that are literally barely worn, Uh, sharing with your friends, passing clothes back and forth. You know, like this, this is kind of where we are. If you all, if you and your whole group of friends all go out and buy a few nice things and share them amongst your kids, there you go, you know? But you also have to have friends who want to have kids. (laughs) So... (laughs) Good luck to everyone. <laughs> it's hard. It's hard. I I will say that like having a small child was where suddenly my like very eco-friendly and very eco-focused lifestyle went off the rails because suddenly like there were just tons of plastic toys coming in our door that were just complete garbage even as soon as they came out of the box, you know, and just all the clothes coming in and out and the barely worn shoes. And it was just like so stressful to me, you know, like juice boxes even. Like it was just all like, oh my God. Everything's one use. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's really hard. I mean, I I guess my advice to people is like, don't be so hard on yourself. You got to make the best with the hand you're dealt right now, you know? Being a parent is really hard anyway. Um, just if it's the clothing, at the very least, donate it to the right place if you mm-hmm. don't get a lot of wear out of it. 
if you can wash it, this is, I don't have kids, but I guess if you can wash a diaper, you can wash anything else, right? <laughs> I will say like right now when the whole world is falling apart, uh, I belong to, like I said, several buy nothing groups out here in Lancaster County even. And there are a lot of people who are really extra, super struggling financially right now who are literally like, does anyone have any kids clothes oh, in this size? There's so many. I know. I would urge you to join groups like that and you are going to make someone's life so much easier by giving them some clothes. I guess that's all I have to say. Do you have any parting thoughts here, Salisha? Um, just, you know, read the labels. We, I learned a lot today. Well, that's the end of this interview then, I guess. Thank you so much, Salisha. Thank you so much, Salisha, for allowing me to get us both super riled up about the tobacco industry, flame retardants, and basically all the injustices of the world. I do want to talk for another minute about fires, because mostly I don't want you to fret about dressing your child or yourself in fireproof clothing. And I also don't want you stressing about your couch lighting on fire either. I mean, fires still happen a lot and they are dangerous and people die in fires. But over the past 25 years, the number of U.S. household fires involving upholstered furniture has been reduced by more than 88%. That... To call that a dramatic reduction is an understatement, and it's attributed to fewer smokers and reduced ignition propensity cigarettes, also known, curiously enough, as RIP cigarettes. And this is the result of the work I was talking about in the conversation with Celicia. Because cigarettes and furniture were just the most super dangerous mix in the middle of the 20th century, house fires in the U.S. declined by 47% between 1983 and 2013. Why? Thanks to changes in smoking behaviors and those safer cigarettes. Today, the top three causes of residential fires are cooking, which are 50% of all fires, heating equipment, which is about 13%, and electrical malfunction, which comes in at 6%. Fires still happen, of course. In fact, a house fire happens every 87 seconds. So it's really important that you don't take the batteries out of your (laughs) smoke detector, which I have been known to do. Make sure they're working. Make sure you and your kids have an evacuation plan in the event of a fire. And please, please teach your children not to hide under beds or other furniture when something scary like that happens because people do die of smoke inhalation during these things and people do get burned. But the great news is that people's clothes aren't just bursting into flames. And now that you know that 50% of fires are caused by cooking, which was pretty shocking to me, to be honest. You should also know that Thanksgiving is the peak day of the whole year for cooking fires. I guess the other cooking holidays aren't as dangerous. I guess what I'm saying is that most of us aren't worrying about our pajamas or our children's pajamas bursting into flames because a lot of fires start in the kitchen. So I would not lose sleep over putting your child to bed in flame-retardant sleepwear. You don't need to. Everything will be okay. 
And lastly, I've been thinking a lot about the tobacco industry since we recorded this episode. For decades upon decades, the industry knew it was churning out a product that was very bad for the health of its users, that actually literally killed its users after a while. It knew that cigarettes were starting massive fires in homes and in cars that would kill and maim entire families. It added chemicals to make sure cigarettes were more addictive. It targeted advertising at children. It targeted advertising toward the black community, women, teenagers, you name it. And all the while, it did everything it could to cover up the real truth about how terrible cigarettes and smoking really were. When someone tries to tell you that fast fashion isn't that bad, or that we're all just paranoid or alarmist about what's really going on behind the scenes, maybe they just can't believe that an industry or a company would operate with such flagrant disregard for the planet and its people. Well, I would ask them if they have heard of the tobacco industry, because 40 or 50 years ago, if you had said that the tobacco industry was knowingly killing us while also trying to get us to buy as much product as possible until we couldn't buy it anymore, well, no one would have believed you. But right there, we have an incredible case study of an industry that was prioritizing profits far before ethics and human life. We can't stop fighting. We can't stop sharing our knowledge with everyone we know. And we can't give up on making a better future for ourselves and our children. Thanks for listening to another episode of Close Horse. Just a reminder that the Close Horse blog launches on 214, aka Valentine's Day. That's just one week away. We already have so many amazing submissions from all of you. Seriously, I'm so excited. But it's not too late for you to get involved because we're going to need new content constantly. So don't worry about being late to the party. If you're interested in contributing, please email me at amanda at closehorse.world. This is going to be like a showcase for our community. So we need the whole community involved, you know? And I know that you have some special skill or story or idea or special area of knowledge that we all want to hear. So reach out. Please don't forget, if you like what you're hearing here at Close Horse, to rate and review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, tell your friends because we're all influencers to the people around us. If you want to meet other Close Horse listeners, of course you do, join the Close Horsing Around Facebook group, and I'll share a link in the show notes. If you're not sick of hearing my voice at this point, which who would be? Like I said, my cat Brenda gives my voice 10 out of 10. (laughs) Please check out my other podcast, The Department, which I co-host with my friend Kim, We're in the midst of a pretty wild series about the 2000s. I don't know how long it's going to go on because every time we think we've outlined everything we need to discuss, like 10 more things pop up. In the next few episodes, we're going to be tackling the hipsters. And 
whew, it's an intense process. So please check it out. Thanks, as always, to Justin Travis White for our music and audio support. Bye. Bye.